0: Welcome friends to another episode of Chris in the Classroom. I'm Chris. This is my classroom. Friends, joining me in the classroom today is uh, a brand new friend of mine. Uh, We actually met through a friend of a friend of a friend, just how networking works. Um, She's an author. She is a speaker. She is a diversity trainer. She is a comedian. uh, Absolute wonderful person. I've enjoyed just getting to know her here over the last little bit. I'm going to introduce you to my friend Jessica Pettit. How
1: are you, ma'am? I'm great. I'm also a recovering high school teacher. Oh, oh really? Mm-hmm. What did you teach? I didn't know that. Uh, U.S. history. Okay.
0: I'm going to stop and pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So you got out of high school teaching to do what you're doing now. Was that the, the jump?
1: Um, I started teaching as a senior in college at Little Rock Central uh, U.S. history there. I got my credentials to be a secondary education with an emphasis in uh, social studies. And then um, from there, I actually went to the Peace Corps where I taught English um, as a foreign language, Or obviously, because I was in Bulgaria. Um, I taught English and then I came back and got my master's in higher ed administration.
0: Wow. You've been... Sounds like you've been all over the place.
1: I think education is where everything starts. So, yeah.
0: Absolutely. I, I'm thinking of so many people right now that got their start in the education field and have blown up to do so many other things. But, yeah, absolutely. Very, my dad told me when I was growing up, he said, you can do with uh, with an education degree, an education degree or a business degree, One of those, either of those two. You can do so many things. Mm-hmm. So, it's true. Very cool. Well, today um, we are going to chat a little bit about um, just kind of what you talk about. You know, with diversity, and that, that's one of the big one of the big things that we see in the in the bullying world. At least, is some of the I'm going to say m- most of the things that a a bully or or and an unkind person will go after it is the easy target of diversity and whether that's color, whether it's right, uh, gender or religion or, um, sexuality or anything like that. Those are such easy targets for, um, uh, somebody who just wants to cause somebody else, uh, that emotional pain. Um, so I look forward to chatting with you a little bit about that today. Um, but, but first I'm, um, you know, your, your book and your, your entire program is called Good Enough Now. Um, what, uh, t- tell us a little bit about the, just the gist behind
1: it, you know, your thought process. What's your program all about? So the work that I do is primarily either keynoting or training, board development, consulting work, things like that. And around the concepts of diversity or social justice work, I got burnt out about three years ago because I wasn't noticing a difference in my audiences or even in myself and in kind of deciding whether or not I was going to quit or kind of revamp, what I realized is I had, I was doing exactly the same thing as every other diversity trainer and expecting wildly different results. Um, That doesn't make any sense. So I decided to do something different to possibly get different results and I have. So the idea of good enough now is doing the best you can with what you got some of the time. So instead of being a perfectionist or constantly a student um, or some kind of social justice warrior that actually limits your relationships with other people, the idea is to try to take responsibility for who and how you are, and the responsibility for the impact of things that you do consciously or unconsciously on other people. And if you can do this some of the time, I think you'll end up with better relationships with people to have more important conversations that will actually lead to change.
0: Wow. So many good things in what you just said in that little one minute snippet there. Um, I love how you say, uh, you know, just stepping out and trying and doing the best you, You're can the best with, you
1: can with with what you got you some of the time.
0: Yes, yeah, some of the time, and just that whole idea of not being a perfectionist. I mean, and I'm sure you you've seen it just in your world. I've seen it in in the education world. So many people want, you know, we're not going to do this until we know it's going to work a hundred percent of the time, or you know, expecting something to work a hundred percent of the time, and you know, and when it doesn't, you pull back but they don't look at the little bit of growth that they maybe have made with the little bit that they tried. I love that mindset.
1: It's yeah, that's absolutely. Amazing. Every little bit actually matters because you're actually trying. You're you have a, you know, foot in the game, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, you know, it goes on the whole I I I have a motto of try, fail, adjust, you know, and if you don't try, then you don't know what doesn't work and you don't know what to adjust to you know, move forward and make those adjustments and find out what could be even more successful. Absolutely. And you were saying, um, you know, you kept trying things and, or you kept doing the same thing over and over again as the, as other diversity trainers and expecting different results. I mean, Einstein said that he said, I think it was Einstein, you know, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So I guess what made you, uh, decide to jump out and do this. I mean, you you know, you went from being a teacher to, you know, ultimately to this big step. What made you make that jump?
1: Well, I think that uh, being a teacher um, and even prior to then being a student, I think I always noticed um, inconsistencies or things that didn't correlate or, Maybe later on, I didn't have the language, but I think later on, um, really just were unjust. Um, so I kind of have always been that person, and I grew up with very supportive parents in a very privileged background where I could point out things that were super controversial. But as a sixth grader, um, it was much harder to not address the fact that this is inconsistent, it doesn't make any sense, and I couldn't get an adult to answer me as to why is this the case when really the answer is an unconscious bias. I didn't check. Mm. Um, So from my first research paper as a student in sixth grade on, I think I've always advocated for folks that, um, didn't, didn't have, um, the just space of being able to be heard or served equally. So everything I've done has been about that. So to me, it's not really much of a, pivot as much as it is I was really unemployable I kept getting (laughs) fired and the third time I got fired um, I decided to start my own business to do this and it seems much more palatable to associations or organizations or companies or schools if I have a departing flight than versus uh, being on staff right better
0: very cool. And for for our listeners, if you want to go check out Jessica, and we'll drop this again at the end. But uh, I've watched some of your videos, um, just kind of preparing for for our chat here today. And I mean, the stuff you talk about is really, really good. And and I think it crosses all boundaries, whether you're conservative or liberal or moderate, somewhere in the. And not to get political or anything, but I think what you talk about, it's it's kind of a breath of fresh air for people on all sides.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, absolutely. So. what I do is I take every contentious divisive topic and help people from all different facets of that topic, be able to hear and be heard. So, I mean, even in, I live in a really small town in rural California and tomorrow night I'm co-facilitating a conversation about gun laws and gun access in a town that is usually makes jokes about itself being pistols and crystals. And, <laughs> What it, what's important to understand and what I learned preparing for the conversation is that people who are very pro-gun and people who are very anti-gun, first off, those two things, it's a false dichotomy because it's actually a very complicated issue. Sure. But whatever, if we boil it down to two teams, really you're talking about safety. Well, who doesn't want to talk about safety in your own community? Mm-hmm. So um, that's what I do is I find the middle ground, not with, not, washing out or dismissing anybody's extreme view but the extreme views are rooted in truth so what is that truth and what do they have in common that's what i do
0: gotcha see and i think that's missing so much nowadays not just from you know from a gun safety issue or you know from any issue you know it doesn't even matter just you have two opposing sides but neither of them, it's so easy for somebody, you know, like me, you, somebody, an outsider to come in and say, okay, where's the common ground? Can we at least just start there? And then, sure. and then we can just kind of hash out the rest as it comes. So I, I love that. It's, it's, uh, it's a great way of thinking. But yeah, um, so your book is called Good Enough Now. And uh, your website is goodenoughnow.com, right? Yep. Very cool. And, you know, for my listeners, we'll we'll drop that again at the end. But just I was just so taken aback how, you know, kind of like you said, you are different from so many other diversity trainers, diversity speakers, diversity programs, just because I felt like, you know, like I said earlier, I felt like you're not speaking at it from one side, you kind of cover all the bases and all the boundaries. So it's a, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air to see, somebody who's not you know hard left or hard right but you're just kind of like no like let's take a look at all sides of the issue and i think that's missing from not just diversity but from so many other issues today um in one of your videos you talked about you know i can't make anybody do anything i can't even make myself do things sometimes and i teach the 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 same thing to kids when i go and talk to them about bullying and, and things in schools you can't control others um you can only control yourself and how you react. Um, elaborate a little bit more on that. How do, you, uh, how do you tell either a small group of people or a large audience, how do you communicate that fact across uh, the entire plane when you've got probably hard left, hard right, moderates, a little bit of everybody in the audience?
1: Well, I think that the, the key piece here is, is that we're being told we're really polarized. Um, We're so polarized right now, and we're more polarized now than we've ever been before. And the truth is, is that we are not more polarized now. We're just being told that we're more polarized. Um, It takes a lot of energy to actively be polarized, and most people are pretty apathetic around most topics. So we can't possibly be more polarized. That's deep. (laughs) So if if I'm getting ready to engage in a conversation, and I'm not doing anything to polarize the two of us, so then it must be you. You're the one doing the thing to polarize. Well, as long as we enter a conversation or enter a relationship thinking the other person is doing the thing that's polarizing us, we're not taking any responsibility for who and how we are. So instead of pointing fingers, what I suggest doing is really paying attention to your own patterns, your own habits, and when you reflect or pay attention to your own business, you can keep the stuff you like. Great. Great. And then the stuff that you don't like, now you can figure out which pieces you might want to change. Or a third option is just holding on to the stuff that seems incongruent. But you're at least conscious of how you are showing up and you're opting in to keeping the pieces that you want to keep and then you're responsible for that impact. And the stuff that you're working on, if you get feedback around like that didn't work or that was a negative impact or you're a jerk or something... When you get that kind of feedback, you're like, yeah, I know. I'm working on that. Thanks for the reminder. Um, But it instantly unpolarizes a situation when you take responsibility for yourself and recognize that you are also a hot mess, right? Like none of (laughs) us are perfect. So if you can control your own hot messness some of the time, then I'm not putting that duty on someone else.
0: Right. And I like how you say, uh, you know when you get that feedback and you know when you get the feedback somebody may say you're a jerk you know, and yeah, I bet then, I Right <laughs> and and just the fact that you can come that that you coach people to say like Yeah, I I may come across that way. I'm working on it, you know, or whatever see and having that resilience to And, and self-acceptance to just to realize that okay, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect nobody's perfect you know I may come across this way I don't mean to offend you it's just this is just how I am I'm working on it and I just rather than you know you get the feedback somebody says you know well you're a jerk and then you just fire right back at them with Mm -hmm. like what do you think I'm a jerk man you should look in the mirror sometime and then it just starts that whole you know that battle of uh, trying to one up each other again and you just get right back full circle into the fight
1: right So, I mean, you, you, it's a gift to get feedback and you're not always entitled to the feedback from other people, but you should also be able to pay attention to yourself. When we tell jokes, I use this as an example all the time. I can tell a joke that I think is hysterical Mm -hmm. and there's a different setting where it doesn't work. Nobody has to say, Jessica, that joke did not work. Like I'm pretty aware when it did and I'm pretty aware when it didn't. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then I'm actually paying attention to the impact without someone telling me about it. Sure. So why don't you just do that more often?
0: That again, that's one of those things. It's like, it makes so much sense, but it almost makes too much sense that it's like, why don't people get it? You know?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really all it is. It's not that hard.
0: I know. I know. Um, so how do you coach the, when you're working with, you know, groups and talking about diversity, how do you coach the, for lack of a better term, and the, the minority group, the diverse group, how do you coach them to deal with the people who are not as well versed in diversity? You know, you've got, you've got a diverse group, you've got the non-diverse group, and you've got them all in the same room. How do you coach the ones who are feeling victimized or you know that that need that voice how do you coach them to be patient to be resilient while those who need to work on things are trying to build up those that skill set
1: well first off i think that creating that kind of team um Mm -hmm. dynamic where like i get it i need to get it um I think that's human nature. I think that we often default to like, we're the good ones. These are the problems, sure. um, which is exactly what the problem is, right? Is that if the problems are always external to you, you're not taking any responsibility for it. So I would coach both of these sides that there are times where you are doing it, where you are actually making someone feel this way. So if, if you are feeling put upon or victimized or targeted or biased or, um, not biased, but like targeted by someone else's bias, um, that could be valid. That could be totally true. That could be completely made up in your head. Who cares? That's how you're feeling. Um, Our reaction is to fix them so they stop doing it, um, which legally speaking makes a lot of sense and things like that. But if we're talking on a larger level, what I need to do is I need to realize I have made people feel the way that I'm feeling right now. When do I make people feel this way? What's my motivation? Why do I do things that also hurt other people? And then I get to choose if I want to keep it, and I get to choose if I want to edit it. Wow.
0: That's a uh, – just in that last 30 seconds, I was just seeing so many uh, so many connections to, to that and how I talk to groups of people – about bullying because at this and and people get shocked when I say this, especially parents. When I talk to a group of of parents, you know, like your kid may feel like a victim right now, but at the same time, I bet you they've also made somebody else feel like a victim and parents are kind of taken aback by it. And Mm -hmm. then, but when I break it down, you know, when, when I say bullying is, is nothing other than an imbalance of power in a situation, and you continue that imbalance of power because it makes you feel good, you enjoy having that power, and it's just repeated over time. When I break that down for them, they're like, oh, you know? And then they start to reflect on themselves. They're like, oh, when have I made somebody feel like a victim? When have I been the bully? And it's just kind of like, oh, everybody has been a bully at some point in their life. Right, that's how
1: bullying actually works, is it trains other bullies how to be.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and it's actually human nature. Um, just throughout my research, I found that it's actually, bullying is actually human nature when you break down the definition. It's that that innate uh, desire, that innate um, notion that we have to want to be top dog. I mean, ever since, you know, and, and you see it in the animal kingdom, you know, you have the alpha male. And it's like we feel threatened whenever somebody comes at us with an insult or something like that we feel we automatically feel threatened and so what's our first reaction what's our emotional reaction well it's to come right back and no you're not going to do this to me you're not going to make me feel that way I'm going to make you feel that way to show you that I'm bigger than you and well,
1: I, I mean and some would say that that's what separates us from a lot of the animals in the animal kingdom is that we have the ability of like rational consciousness and like thinking about like wait 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 What's my lizard brain telling me to do? Right. <laughs> do I actually want to do this? Absolutely. Um, or more importantly, what did my lizard brain make me do? Okay, great. Now, do I want to keep doing that? Do I need to apologize? Do I need to change the habit? Do I need to like not do that next time? Or do I need to like, yes, that was good. That was hot. I magically pulled my hand away. Okay, good. Um. The, that's what self-reflection is. Self-responsibility is, is paying attention to our habits. Um, I think that another thing that, I know this wasn't in our list of questions, but I think it's really important is that our lived experience have taught us how to be. And that's a lot easier in some degree for us to embrace about ourselves because we're familiar with our lived experience, but if you think about the worst person on the planet, whoever that is for you, I have come up with about four or five people to think of. <laughs> but their lived experiences have taught them that this is how to be safe and prepared. Absolutely. So th- there is a, a possibility that you can provide some grace for someone who's showing up in a horrible awful way, but they're they're telling you that their life has taught them that this is how to best be in this moment. So regardless of what's happened in their life, they feel that they are probably making an informed choice. Absolutely. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, it's still informed by their lived experience.
0: For sure. And I I, I dropped this bomb uh, yesterday. I was speaking at a youth leadership event yesterday and um, I dropped this bomb on them. And, you know, it's a it's a room of 100, 120 student leaders, you know, high school student leaders. and And I said, you know, would you believe me if I told you that The majority, 90% plus of bullies actually feel like Mm -hmm. victims in another part of their life. And that's Mm -hmm. just the way that they're handling their victimization. And the kids just kind of looked at each other like, what is he? Like, what? And um, last week, you know, I was was in Houston on a mission trip and we were building houses for hurricane victims and everything. And we were five miles away from Santa Fe High School where that shooting recently took place. Mm -hmm. And so I took my my group of high schoolers that I had with me, we went there and we kind of, we stood in the, in the yard and we prayed. And, you know, we just kind of looked at all the the flowers and the monuments and everything. And one of the kids asked me, she's like, you know, Chris, how, how can somebody do this? And I looked at her and I said, well, honestly he felt like a victim and that's the way that he chose, or that's the way that he, felt the need to deal with his victimization and when you kind of step back and you kind of put all that in perspective it's like oh so he felt victimized so he made other victims and now the those victims it's just it becomes a uh you know it kind of like you said it's really hard to take sides on you know there's a right party there's a wrong party when we're all wrong at, at times.
1: We're all wrong at times for sure. I also think that when when you talk about victimization, you also have to talk about how power shows up there too, right? Mm. But if you're victimized, great. But what victimized you? A sense of entitlement? Oh. Right? If a sense so in this particular case, right, like someone felt entitled to something and they didn't get it. Therefore they're a victim. <clears throat> it's a very different kind of victim than being a target of actually um acknowledging the lack of power that one has, right? So the cycle of power is related to who feels entitled to win, which is also a power move, and who feels entitled to have a loser to match them in their victimhood, versus someone who is actually being a target of someone who really does have power over them. And that they we're calling these both victim and victimhood, but it what, what triggers the victimhood desire, I think, is really important. Oh, and for sure. So, I mean, th- I would say the same thing. If we went to police brutality, I don't think anybody feels um, that – I don't feel that anybody feels that a victim is bigger on either side of the fairly typical police brutality, um, uh, violence, gun violence, those kind of conversations – what i think is interesting though is is who feels entitled or more entitled to come home at night mm. and some people would argue who are not police officers generally speaking the police officers sign up for a job where there is a possibility they are not going to come home at night but if i'm walking down the street holding a shower head walking to home depot to get a new shower head i may feel entitled to get to home depot and to get home so that entitlement isn't related to my position in society until we start layering bias. So wow. then, what's happening? Thinking about that particular case in New York where a black man was walking down the street with a shower head, right? His shower head broke. He's walking down the street to get a new shower head. What does it mean when we start thinking about entitlement when it comes to power?
0: That's deep.
1: <laughs> I can walk down the street holding a shower head, I'm not going to get shot and killed. That's not going to happen. Right. I don't, but am I, do I feel I don't even, I'm not even conscious that I feel entitled to walk down the street with a shower head if I want to. Or right. playing at work with a boy. Exactly. Or popping in a store or have a broken turn signal. Um, I don't necessarily think about those things. And so, it's it's not necessarily, in my opinion, about right and wrong because that's too elementary. Mm-hmm. What it's really about is understanding the victimization that we apply to ourselves and the victimization that are, is applied to us by others and how that balances in with bias power and a sense of entitlement.
0: Wow. Interesting. Um, in one of your videos, you you also say, you know, we're the ones who are responsible for being frustrated, um, Mm -hmm. in different situations. Um, that tells me that, I mean, and we've said it already that you do focus a lot on personal responsibility Mm -hmm. and, um, and everything. So talk about the, and, and that you touch on the, the psychology, the actual psychology of it, um, leaving, again, leaving out the, the right, wrong, political, you know, whatever bias, um, but focusing on the psychology of being comfortable in your own skin and being happy with who you are and how you are. How do you see that coming into, I don't say coming into play, how do you see that message being received? Um, you know, when you do tell people like, Hey, you're responsible for getting upset. You're the ones responsible for whether or not you're mad. How do you, how do you see that message being received?
1: There's a piece that I think is important that's missing. And, um, I mean, what you're saying, I think is accurate, but I think it needs a small container. Sure. Please. So when I say is, is that if, if you're frustrated by someone Who acts exactly the way you expected them to? That's your fault, right? So what I mean by this is, is that like, let's say like I'm a cusser, right? Like the filter is in because I'm on somebody's podcast. Right.
0: (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah,
1: you're welcome. So I'm just natural. Like that's just who I am. That's how I communicate. And I recognize that I need to put in a filter every once in a while for somebody else's audience or preferences, right? Right. Okay. So if you and I are just hanging out over dinner and let's say you are not a cusser, I don't know this about you, but let's just say you're totally not a cusser.
0: I'm generally not, but yeah.
1: Okay, great. So then let's go to in public, we're at dinner. So I don't have my filter in. I could be really embarrassing to you because I'm cussing, right? Mm -hmm. Next time we go out, I do it again. Next time we go out, I do it again. Next time I go out. The fifth time that we go out, if you're mad at me for cussing, And you have, one, you've never said anything, two, you've never addressed anything, but you're really mad at me for doing exactly what you expected me to do. That's your problem. Because you didn't adjust your expectations or ask me to adjust my behavior to fit your expectations. So you're responsible for that. Right, because you're not a mind reader. Right, exactly. So what we end up doing is just harboring more and more and more frustrations about about the people's behavior or the impact of their behavior, and we've never said anything, we've never done anything, we've never changed our expectations, we've never talked to them, we've never confronted them, we've never done anything. We just get more and more and more and more frustrated. Well, do something about it. Right. Address it, or that's too confrontational for some people. Great, change your expectations. So when you know you're going out to lunch with me, there's a really good chance I'm going to cuss, right? Now that I know this little fun factoid about you, now I know if we go to lunch, I can put my filter in. Right,
0: right. Either that or, you know, now that I know that about you, I can tell you like, hey, you know, I I grew up in an environment, you know, not with my parents, but, you know, just with friends and and other family. You know, I grew up in an environment where, you know, a lot of people around me thought that, you know, cussing was fine. And it doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't bother me. But if it did you know, we, we would at least have that common Ah, ground.
1: Right. Yeah. When I visit friends' houses, I, one of the first things I do, especially if my friends have children is, um, before I get there, I always ask, so where are you and your kids around tattoos, um, different bits and pieces about my identity, uh, language, things like this. What can I share? What can I share? And Mm -hmm. most of my friends are like, whatever, like you're here, they're excited to see you. Like, enjoy yourself. Have a good time. Um, But depending, I will then make a judgment and assumption, right, Um, on I have a lot of tattoos. So, number one, that is weird for a lot of kids to have pictures on your skin. So, sometimes kids are actually scared of my tattoos. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be upsetting, right? Um, If it's cold, it doesn't matter. I'm going to have a lot of clothes on and socks on anyway, so no one's going to see anything. But I'm navigating my friend's parenting, not my expectations of that kid, right? And again, most of my friends that are parents are like, who cares? It's fine. But every once in a while, they're like, "Uh, thank you for asking. And yeah, if you can cover up or something, that would be great. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead of me being frustrated or feeling like I have to do something and I didn't ask, again, do I feel entitled to being able to walk around my friend's house that I'm sleeping in their spare bedroom in a tank top and a pair of shorts, do I feel entitled to do that? Or can I ask and see if that's appropriate?
0: Right. Absolutely. Now, here's a question. What do you think, um, especially in today's day and age, you know, today's times, what do you think is holding people back from having those conversations. I mean, and, and if you think about it, it's not even really a massive conversation, but what what is holding those people back from just saying, you know, hey, does this bother you? You know, if I do X, Y, and Z, you know, is that okay? Or from the other side, just saying, you know, hey, when you, if the, it's the old, you know, peer mediation model, you know, when you do this, this, and this, it makes me feel this way, this way, this way, you know, so I would appreciate it if you would not cuss so much. I would appreciate it if you would cover up your tattoos next time. I mean, whatever. What do you think is holding people back nowadays from having those conversations, those mature conversations?
1: Sure. So uh, the answer comes twofold. So it's kind of a Buddhist model of holding two conflicting emotions, emotions at once. Mm -hmm. I think it depends if you're kind of in the up group or the down group in the particular situation as to what the reasoning is. And one person can flip between the up group and the down group and the up group and the down group. Just because you're a member of the down group doesn't mean you get every other member identity or every other experience in a marginalized or subordinated identity. And just because you're in an up group doesn't mean you only live in a dominant or privileged group identity space. But um, I think burnout... Or exhaustion and I think um, lack of self-reflection and ignorance are the two so when I say exhaustion and burnout what I mean is that those of us that have really privileged identities we don't necessarily realize the the act of revolution that it is sometimes for people to just show up at work again like I rolled out of bed today you are welcome my work is done I have nothing else to give um, and I think uh, one example I think about that a lot is a, a really good friend of mine, when his uh, first child was born, there were some pretty significant complications with the baby and his partner, and they were both in uh, different parts of the same hospital in intensive care, and he was, would alternate staying all night long with one or both of them and then go to work full time, right? So he's not talking to anybody at work about what's happening. He's exhausted. He hasn't slept. He did this for like six weeks. And um, surprise, sometimes he just got to the point where, like, I showed up to work today. What do you want from me? But because he didn't tell anybody and nobody asked, nobody knows. And so maybe his work started declining. Maybe he stopped doing social things. He would have to because all of his time is at work or at the hospital. Um, But other people are going to write a story about what that means, right? So the exhaustion and the burnt out the burnout of constantly being the person who has to address what is happening and what, what their lived experience actually is like that other people don't understand, I think prevents people from having the conversation just one more time. Right. That's one. The other piece from the upper dominant privilege sides of the group is that I think there's, it's really hard to know what you don't even know. And it takes a lot of reflection. Like There's, you know, I always say there's three kinds of knowledge. There's what you know you know. There's what you know you don't know. And then there's everything else that you don't even know you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so when someone in that position is challenged with something and they didn't even know that they didn't know something, they tend to get really defensive. And then if, if they reflect on it, they get guilty or they feel ashamed or they're fearful or nobody likes to be ignorant, right? So then that's part of the reason I say is just just enter a conversation or enter a relationship that is highly possible you're going to do something that is frustrating or offensive to the other person. Why don't you lean into that and see what it is and then don't do it. Sure. Or at least don't do it next time.
0: Right. Exactly. And I see with kids too nowadays, you know, it's, it's both of those things, but at the same time... Um, yeah, you know, and I don't I don't want to sound like one of those, you know, crotchety old men, you know, cuz I'm really not, but it's that whole they're they're so buried in their in their phones and their social media and and everything that they have going on um that it takes away from their ability to have those face-to-face conversations where it's easier for them just to alienate somebody or to just say things behind their back and in kind of a passive aggressive way I see that so much that once it gets back around to the person it's like then there's hurt feelings and everything like that but the the quickest point a to point b way of doing it would just to be hey when you do this or when this happened I felt you know I felt this way
1: Mm -hmm.
0: that's it I love it, I love it. It's so common sense it's so common sense. Um, now you talk about uh, writing stories and how we uh, write stories about others and we make judgments and assumptions we I mean and we all do it every day um, and, and it's funny once i once I heard you say that on one of your videos um, it it I, I really started to kind of take inventory of how many times a day i write a story about someone or something but it's everything that we look at it's everything that we come in contact with that we write some sort of story about whether it's you know it's right or wrong or you know absolute or not um so you talk a lot about writing stories what um where'd the question go there it is what do you tell people about writing stories about themselves You, you, you know, you address how we write stories about things around us. What do you tell people about how to write stories about themselves?
1: Sure. Well, the reason why I start about writing stories about other people is that it tends to be an easier lift. People just starting with self-reflection gets kind of blown off. So if, if we write stories about, and what I mean by that is make judgments and assumptions about other people so that we can feel safe and prepared That doesn't mean that we're accurate, right? So go ahead and write the story, judge away, make assumptions, feel safe, feel prepared. But then you print that story about other people, triple space with extra wide margins. So then if you are generously and curiously interested in edits, you'll listen to the other person and get more accurate information and edit your own story. Well, to answer your question about your own self-reflection is that if I can do this outside, it'll become a habit. And every once in a while, outside habits actually are easier to apply to yourself. So then you literally can have this kind of meta conversation with yourself and notice what judgments and assumptions do you have about yourself reacting to a particular situation? Print that out triple space with extra wide margins and let's go gather some data and find out if that's accurate about yourself. And one of the best ways of doing that is your free accountability buddy. And that's your best friend. So things that you think about yourself, check in with your closest friends. Most of us have more than one best friend. It's because they all know different parts of us, right? Mm -hmm. Why weddings are scary because they're all under the same. (laughs) Check in with each of your best friends and ask them like, I think I'm this. I think that this is how I function in the world. What are your thoughts? And then you have to be vulnerable and authentic enough to actually listen to their feedback. You might be right. You might need to get more accurate.
0: Right. And then that comes right back to what we were talking about earlier, where somebody may come up, like it might be your best friend. Like for me, it's my wife. Um, You know, where they come back to you and say, well, here you're good, but here, mm, you need a lot of work over here. And then, but then being able to have that resilience and take that feedback and not look at it as a slam, but look at it as, oh, this person who really, really knows me wants to help me get better. Sure. And then take it as constructive criticism rather than a slam.
1: Right. And I would say, note, how if we use you and your wife as an example, how often are you giving her feedback, right, on things that she can do to grow versus accepting her feedback about how you can grow? Mm-hmm. and. I would say shoot for a balance if that's possible. Um, But usually due to power dynamics in certain ways around different topics, it goes, it's not always even. Right. So like I am very aware that I am a horrible housekeeper, horrible, (laughs) embarrassing. It's terrible. So my partner does not need to tell me that I'm bad at housekeeping. Like I'm, I'm pretty clear on that. We are solid on that and I'm completely comfortable with it. But my partner does need to tell me that, like, I also live in this house, so I also have a responsibility to what this is, and it's not just their responsibility to clean up; it's our responsibility to clean up. Right. So, we feel like, oh yeah, I'm terrible at it. It's great. That's not a reason to not discuss it.
0: Sure. And then you guys can have that conversation and come to that that common ground, that compromise of okay, like, yes, you, you may be a terrible housekeeper, but you know we got to have that that certain level of you know of cleanliness of right. of of that just to, so we can at least function in here and then also when companies coming over it's not going to take us 4 days to get the house in order
1: yeah and our our standards are different so we need to have conversations about that and the the argument that in, us in always pops up is we both don't like a lot of clutter and so then, when it, the house starts feeling overwhelming and it's dirty and we have to figure it out, then the first step is to pick up your stuff. Well, when you start that process as a couple, none of my stuff is everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, like it's your clutter that's everywhere that is now making you feel overwhelmed. Like, and we have a rule I don't touch your stuff, pick up your stuff, right? So then it always leads to this conversation I can't dust, not that I would choose to dust, but I can't dust until you pick up your junk. So instead of, we don't have that conversation. So then it just gets dustier and more cluttery, right? Right. Until eventually one of us breaks, it's usually my partner. And then they realize, oh, it's my crap everywhere.
0: Right. (laughs) Very cool. So awesome. Well, Jessica, I thank you so much for for hanging out with us today. This has been really cool. You're great. You're a great person to get to know. And Thanks. um, You too. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, I kind of wish you still lived in Texas. I would love to, you know, because I mean, you lived in Plano. I live in Fort Worth. That's like forty-five minutes away. I'd love to catch up and do coffee with you sometime if you still lived around
1: here. Well, but, I, I don't know if you're going to influence the National Speakers Association annual conferences in Dallas this year in July and okay. be there. So hopefully, we'll get to see each other there.
0: Interesting. Okay, uh, July is kind of a crazy month. So I just have to look up when the what the dates are. But yeah, sure. um, very cool. Well, good enough now is the book uh where can people get it
1: so you can go to amazon or if you go to goodenoughnow.com slash freebies um that's a link to all the handouts and activities and some videos and stuff about the book as well
0: interesting very cool i feel like some of this stuff or a lot of this stuff actually crosses uh because you do a lot of corporate work and and things like that is that correct yeah um but I, I feel like a lot of this stuff crosses all age boundaries and can be very valuable for, um, you know, for my audience, for, for the school age audience, you know, whether it's teachers Absolutely. or principals or even kids. So Absolutely. very cool. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you again. This was good.
1: Perfect. Thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate
0: it. All right. Have a good one. Bye. And for my listeners, class is dismissed.